Welcome back to Cold War episode 101, Woo-hoo! Ray. We're yeah. in our second century. Triple digits. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> that well, last episode, we were triple digits. Well, yeah, but now I'm celebrating it. It's like, anyway, I just realized it. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. In our last episode, we uh, were talking about, we talked about the famine mm-hmm. killed estimated one to two million people just in the north of Vietnam. Yes. Uh, maybe 10% of the population dead in under a six-month period. Um, And at the end of the last episode, we talked about the story of the military commander of the VLA, the Vietnamese Liberation Army, Ho Vo, Vo Nguyen Jap, Mm -hmm. um, uh, whose wife had been beaten to death by the French uh, in a prison, Um, his infant daughter dead his sister guillotined and uh, he has no, he's a history teacher no right. military experience or education and ho's advice to him was attack by surprise and retreat before the enemy can respond yeah because that's how we got so i'm sorry go ahead well i was going to say that um you know as, as i think i mentioned in the last episode the army's job was also, propaganda. It was a propaganda war mm-hmm. at this stage. Again, they were sort of waiting for the conditions to be right. They, the, the first division, the uh, Tran Huang Dao platoon, named after the 13th century badass. Vietnamese military hero, badass, right. yeah, formed in December 1944, but they're, they're, they're waiting uh, before they do any major military engagements. Um, or a general uprising of the population. They're waiting for the Japanese to be defeated. Right. Japanese have already kind of kicked the French out, and now they're waiting for the Japanese to get kicked out by the Allies. But Ho had decided that for propaganda purposes, they needed to win a quick military victory. He actually set a goal. Within a month of being established, they needed to have a successful military engagement. And so on the 25th of December... 1944, Jap made a Christmas present by attacking a couple of French outposts. Wow. So so the French have been pushed out of the major cities, but they're still around. But again, because they're more hated than anybody else, that's who you go after versus the Japanese who are probably too strong at this point. And I'm, well, the French I'm government had been removed. They've right. been, you know, the, the Japanese had been giving orders to the French government. Now they go, you know what, we're just going to take gotcha. over the government. The, okay. the, the, the French are still there. They've just been controlled by the Japanese. Mm. Um, they, they, as you said, they put an emperor in place, uh, Baldai, the, um, emperor of, the last emperor of Vietnam. Right. Um, he's basically a Japanese puppet. The Japanese are pulling the strings. But, yeah, the, there are still French military there mm. just doing the bidding of the Japanese. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, before you go on, I just wanted to mention real quick. So last time at the end of the last show, we covered kind of like the military side of it. But like you said, uh, propaganda is going to be mixed up in it because they're still building. They're still getting ready for the opportune time, which clearly has not come yet. But the other thing the Viet Minh have to worry about 
in a sense, is making sure that they look better than the quote-unquote legitimate government under the emperor is Prime Minister Kim, again a lackey of the Japanese, and Ho does a very good job of tying all these disasters to the Kim government, saying that they're slaves to the Jap- Japanese, and they're all, look look at them all, they're all doctors and lawyers and they're, they're other professionals, but what he doesn't mention is because they really have no options, they have no money, the Japanese are taking everything, they're, uh, they have no support, they really couldn't help the people if they wanted to. So after years of bombing, the roads and the rails are all in bad shape. What little shipping there is um, going on again is all taken up by the the Japanese. And any even messages trying to get out of, how do you say it, Hue, the capital? I'm not sure, H-U-E, if I'm saying that right. Even stuff like that takes days and weeks just to get a message to another part of the country. So, So Ho is making sure that everybody knows that his people, his institution, cares more about them than the Kim government is actually doing a better job because it's very important that he ties them to the Japanese because once the Japanese are gone, he needs them to fall as well. He's trying to remove an opponent even before he has to fight them. Again, this guy is just politically brilliant, and he's doing a very effective job of this. He's getting ready. This has been years in the making, so he's had time to think all of this through, and he's trying to tie up all these loose ends. Mm. So getting back to the first attack on the French outposts, did you want to talk about that? Or no, please. No, you're just going to talk about other stuff. I'm going to talk about other stuff until you say Inter- it. Yeah. Interrupting my flow. Oh, man, flow. I'm, I'm such a diva. I apologize. I apologize. You don't have anything about the attack? No, and no. I feel bad. No. Mm-hmm. So he attacked a couple of French outposts on Christmas Day 1944, as I was saying. Yeah. Uh, two French lieutenants were killed. Some Vietnamese soldiers that were working for the French there were um, the, they surrendered. Mm-hmm. The Vietnamese suffered no casualties, so wow. they've they've had their first attack and it went well under Jap. And so for the first half of 1945, he continued to do these little hit and run missions. Right. Um, uh, the, the the French and the Japanese uh, are weakening. Obviously, the Japanese, uh, just generally speaking, are on their knees at this stage sure. uh, globally. Um, and uh, this is when it's actually on the 9th of March in 1945 when they installed Bao Dai as the emperor, mm. the final emperor of the Nian dynasty, right. the last ruling family of Vietnam. And it was Bao Dai, actually, that renamed the country Vietnam, ah. Some, something that the Vietnamese had been arguing for for a long time. Um, he was only 32, mm-hmm. Bao Dai. Wow. I mean, Ho, Ho summed up the situation like this in some of his propaganda. The Japanese have become the real masters. The French are some kind of respectable slaves. And upon the Indo-Chinese falls the double honour of being not only slaves to the Japanese, but also the slaves of the slaves, the French. Oh. So by April, the Viet Minh had nearly 5,000 members. So... Of course, the the way that you run a revolutionary army like this is as you're going from village to village, mm-hmm. you're saying to the people, "Come with," you know, right. to the particularly to the the young men of each village. Yeah. 
come help us win liberation for your country. And this is why timing is so important. If you try and do that when the people aren't ready to fight, um, you're not going to be able to pull together an army. That's why Fidel was confident that with 22 men he could take over the country because he believed that the people were ready. They would rise up and join him, and they did. Um, Obviously, Ho and Jiap believed that um, as well, that the people would rise up and join forces with them. But if the timing's not right, then the people won't join you, and they will, in fact, work against you. If they're too scared Mm -hmm. uh, or they're not quite – yeah, they're not quite ready – um, they're not desperate enough, um, then that kind of a, an approach, building um, th- your forces from the, the people in the villages isn't going to work out. Yeah. Now, w- what was interesting for me is that, you know, by March and April of 1945, the Americans are getting closer. And like we said on the last episode, they know of the Viet, Viet Minh. They, they have a sense of, of who they are, what they're trying to do, at least on a basic level. And they certainly know about their presence in Tonkin. Now, ever since the Japs came in and kicked out the French or took over from the French in March of 19. 19- uh, 44, um, the Allies haven't had that great spy network um, that they had before. And again, because the Americans, the vast majority of the Americans do not know about the atomic bombs that are coming, they are assuming they are going to have to fight their way throughout all of the lands that Japan has, has taken over. So again, you have to get ready for, for, uh, for Indochina. So they're like, we have to come up with something. Uh, we obviously can't use the French because the French are not in charge anymore. So they're going to need another option. And at least they're, they're, they're smart enough to get that right. So they start putting feelers out and maybe the Viet Minh are someone that we can work with. We don't, this is kind of like the Russians. For right now, at this moment, we have the same goals. Maybe afterwards, not so much, but for right now, maybe we can work together. They've got feet and eyes on the ground. We've got supplies. Maybe we can work something out because this is our best option at this time. Yeah, as we've talked about uh, before, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm-hmm. And at this point, um, they were both on the same side, right. the Americans and the Viet Minh. One of the great ironies of history is that for a period of a few months anyway, between May and August of 1945, mm-hmm. the United States uh, supplied and trained <laughs> the Viet Minh. Right. Um, just like they supplied and trained the Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, they supplied and trained um, Saddam Hussein uh, in his uh, war against Iran right. in the 80s. They will, they will f- supply and train anyone this is, uh, if they're going to help them achieve their objectives. Right. Until it comes and they usually will end up... F- right. <laughs> Yeah, they usually end up fighting them later, but that's somebody else's problem. Yeah. It's not my problem right now. I I get to win my battles right now. Yeah, someone else's problem. Yeah. Kick the can down the road (laughs) strategy. Um, Now, there was a guy, the guy who first, the American guy who first made contact, official contact with Ho, was a guy called Captain Charles Fenn. Mm Mm-hmm. F-E-N-N, of the Office of Strategic Services. Sounds noble. What can you tell us uh, about the OSS, 
right? Yeah, that was um, that was Donovan uh, at first, who was a personal friend of FDR. He said, "Look, let me set this up for you. We need to have our own um, spy network. We need to figure out what's going on. This is, I guess, the precursor to the CIA, but it's um, basically the United States's wartime intelligence agency. So they they get people that." Um, who I guess you could say they think along the same lines as they do. Uh, Donovan, I think, chaps, uh, taps Fen for this, and uh, he's going to send them into southern China, get this going, set this up. We're eventually going to send some people in, but let's make contact with the Viet Minh so they can so they can be our eyes on the ground, get this going, because eventually we're going to need all this information because we assume the United States is going to have to invade this just like we're going to have to invade every, everywhere else that Japan has taken over. Mm. Yeah, the guy who created the OSS, William Donovan, is one of these larger-than-life <laughs> characters. Yes. Um, he's regarded as the founding father of the CIA because, as you said, the OSS morphed into the CIA mm. after World War II. But he was a had been a friend, a lifelong friend of FDR. I think they went to school together or college, university together, something like that. Right. Um, and, yeah, it, it, the OSS was really their uh, attempt to build their own intelligence uh, network because they couldn't rely on the British um, and, you know, ended up doing a lot of uh, horrendous things, as we will talk about over the course of this show. Um, you know, not a good thing. One, I don't agree with Donald Trump on much, but one of the things I do agree with him on is you can't fucking trust anything the CIA tells you. And if you think you can, you're yeah. an idiot. Right. You've been brainwashed by the propaganda. Uh, they, they lie for a living. Yeah. That is their job. And um, if you think, well, yes, but they wouldn't lie to Americans. Yes, yeah. they fucking lie to <laughs> Americans. They've been caught lying to Americans many, many yeah. times over the years. Um, and they don't, they don't stop. They go, oh, oh, well, yeah. sorry about that. Yeah, no, we won't. We'll uh, do it again. We won't do that again. <laughs> but like all serial liars... <laughs> Uh, yeah, like right, right. No, <laughs> no I, I was going to say something I shouldn't say. I was just going to say if, if, if history shows that every other corporation or, ent- or entity is self-serving, why would not the CIA also be self-serving? Because they have higher principles, because they're serving <laughs> serving a nobler cause. No, no, the CIA, just like anything else, makes wants to make sure its budget is always increased and that it's not going anywhere. Its its existence is not threatened, and so you do or say whatever you have to. It's just that for the most of the time, they're pretty good at it because again, a lot of Americans still think they're this neutral, loyal organization. And the CIA has spent huge amounts of money, of my money of propaganda yeah. to get Americans to believe that. Exactly. Um, and lit like literally, I'm not even being facetious and this is public record. Uh, they have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on sponsoring favorable depictions of them in books, television shows, movies um, over the last 50 years. Yeah. It's propaganda. It's classic propaganda. Um, And and Americans buy it generally, lock, stock and barrel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So anyway, yes, the OSS. So Charles Fenn from the OSS um, sought out a meeting with Ho. Now, he'd heard about Ho, Mm -hmm. um, Hopeful Ho. Uh, He'd heard about Ho's organisation, the Viet Minh, about Ho's role in locating American pilots Ah. that had 
right. crashed or ejected Propaganda. in Vietnam. No, sorry. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, I think you said before that um, the Americans couldn't rely on the French. Well, the French obviously in Vietnam at the time to help the, couldn't rely on the French to help defeat the Japanese. The, this is obviously Vichy right. France. Yeah. They're controlled by the Nazis. Yeah. So they're not going to be favourable to the Americans anyway. Right. But officially, but of course there were there were there were people inside of the even the Vichy administration that weren't happy with it, and they were leaking the the Edward Snowdens right. of uh, Vichy France oh, yeah. who were leaking information uh, that would get back to the Americans. But uh, that's when Vichy were in control. When the Japanese removed them from the government of uh, even a puppet government of Vietnam. Uh, that that intelligence network, backdoor intelligence network, disappeared. So the Americans were hoping they'd be able to get more intelligence from Ho and the Viet Minh. Now, according to Charles Fenn, right. who, by the way, became a lifelong friend of Ho Chi Minh's, mm. um, Ho saved 17 American pilots before the war ended. Wow. It's not. It's not the depiction I think of Ho that most Americans grow up with. No. Saved American lives, right. Ho Chi Minh. And and the other part of that is Fenn was a former Marine Corps officer. So you know you saved one of my you know one of the guys us in military. So how how could that not establish a, a, at least a minimum um, bond between those two? Now he'd also heard that when Ho got out of prison in China, he used to spend a lot of time at the Office of War Information in Kunming right. in southern China, the American OWI offices, just hanging out, reading yeah. Time magazine uh, and American American papers. Obviously, trying to f- figure out how to establish some sort of some sort of formal contact right. with the Americans, so he could get their support. Um, and then when they finally met him and Fenn on, in March of 1945, Fenn wrote the following description of the meeting in his diary. Okay. Ho came along with a younger man named Pham. Ho wasn't what I expected. In the first place, he isn't really old. He'd obviously heard that he was old. Mm-hmm. His silvery wisp of beard suggests age, but his face is vigorous and his eyes bright and gleaming. We spoke in French. It seems he has already met Hall, Blass, and de Cibur, who were also OSS officers in uh, Kunming, but got nowhere with any of them. I asked him what he had wanted of them. He said only recognition of his group, called Viet Minh League or League for Independence. I'd vaguely heard of this as being communist and asked him about it. Ho said that the French call all Annamites communists who want independence. I told him about our work and asked whether he'd like to help us. He said they might be able to, but had no radio operators, nor, of course, any equipment. We discussed taking in a radio and generator and an operator. Ho said a generator would make too much noise. The Japs were always around. Couldn't we use the type of set with a battery such as the Chinese use? Mm. I explained they were too weak for distant operation, especially when the batteries run down. I asked him what he'd want in return for helping us. Arms and medicines, he said. I told him the arms would be difficult because of the French. We discussed the problem of the French. Ho insisted that the Independence League are only anti-Jap. I was impressed by his clear-cut talk 
Buddha-like composure, except movements with wrinkled brown fingers. Pham made notes. It was agreed we should have a further meeting. They wrote their names down in Chinese characters, which were romanized into Pham Fuck Pao and Ho Chi Ming. Mm. So he t- Ho told him, no, no, we, we only hate the Japs, got yeah. nothing against the French, no. and no, no, we're not. He didn't say we're not communists. Yeah. He said the French call any Anamite who wants independence right. a communist. So he didn't answer the question. Mm. Nice. Yeah. yeah, sneaky ho. They <laughs> called him after that. Yeah, and so on, sneaky ho. <laughs> yeah, they met on March seventeenth at the Dragon's Gate Cafe. Had a little conversation and, and about Fam, who went with them. Um, he was the son of a Confucian scholar. Um, he joined Ho, Ho Chi Minh's, uh, you know, the, the Revolutionary Youth Association. He had been arrested by the French authorities for being a communist organizer in nineteen twenty nine. Spent seven years of his life in prison, and as you can imagine, that is not going. That probably was a very hard time for him. So this guy, just like all the others, is well motivated and he's by host side and and again they're they're meeting the Americans they're not really lying to them but they're leaving information out because again Ho is trying to establish very good relations from these people with these people and just a, just a tip if anyone wants to get more information on fam I don't recommend googling fam fuck pal <laughs> um, unless unless you're interested in lots of uh, interfamilial <laughs> sex porn. Dad's an best kisser. Best kisser. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. which case, yeah, go, go for it. it. Go for it. <laughs> go for it. Did you read about? Oh yeah. So I, I didn't want to jump ahead of you. <clears throat> were you going to get to the? Were you going to just skip you over? You didn't the... want to jump ahead of me. <laughs> yeah. Fuck off. <laughs> About Fenn being a, how do you say it, a graphologer? He studied graphology? Or we're we just going to cut that out because it's a pseudoscience, which is fine. Yeah, no, I'm going to read about that. Okay. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> Fenn also wrote about his first meeting Baudelaire felt the wings of insanity touch his mind, but that morning I felt the wings of genius touch mm. mine. Wow. Yeah, genius. Poetry. Poetry, right. Charles Fenn. Yes, he now Fenn studied Fenn studied graphology. What what is graphology, I, Ray? Where you I, you analyze the physical characteristics and patterns of someone's handwriting to identify, I guess, the writer, the kind of state they're in at the time of the writing, and evaluate their personal characteristics. But this is not exactly a science; it's more anecdotal. But hey, he was into it, which I think it was a fad among. Uh, the upper class at, at this time in the Western world, if I remember correctly. I think it was also a technique that members of the OSS were probably trained in. It was, would have been part of your spy craft at but that it, point in time, how to, yeah. how to read people by studying their handwriting. But w- would, you, would you say that you would get more out of talking with someone for an hour, having a legitimate conversation versus studying their handwriting for an hour? Well, I, again, I think and at that point in time, uh, yeah. they did think that, okay, well, if, if, you're, if somebody's lying, somebody can meet me and lie to me, but if I get an analysis of their handwriting, I can tell mm. what's really going on because you can't fake the personality of Trace. your handwriting. Right. Right. Sound know. like you don't, you're not too convinced either. Yeah, it's a, it's up there with astrology, uh, <laughs> and, and or down there, but yeah, 
yeah. homeopathics <laughs> as crystals. Uh, crystals as you know, complete and utter bullshit. <laughs> oh, now people are going to be leave your opinions, stick to history, leave your opinions of graphology oh. out of it. I don't come to this podcast. <laughs> I have been a big fan of this podcast up until the point. I am sick of hearing you criticise pseudoscientific beliefs that uh, I believe in. How dare you, sir? Right? Yeah. Yeah. How? Just keep your opinions on graphology to yourself, sir. Well, since we or I will be forced to listen to another podcast about (laughs) the Cold War. (laughs) Yeah. Good luck with that. So this is what Fenn wrote about Ho's handwriting. The essential features are simplicity, desire to make everything clear, remarkable self-control, knows how to keep a secret, neat, orderly, unassuming, no interest in dress or outward show, self-confident and dignified, gentle but firm, loyal, sincere and generous would make a good friend. Outgoing, gets along with anyone. Keen analytical mind, difficult to deceive. Shows readiness to ask questions. Good judge of character. Full of enthusiasm, energy, initiative. Conscientious, painstaking attention to detail. Imaginative, interested in aesthetics, particularly literature. Good sense of humour. Humor. Likes having the inside of his knees tickled lightly with a feather. Um, enjoys a good steak, medium rare. Likes his like likes his vod, likes his vodka martini shaken, not stirred. <laughs> enjoys the music of Toto. Well, at least only one of their songs. Right. Probably wouldn't pay one hundred and fifty nine dollars to see them in concert for right. one fucking song. You know, there are limits yeah. to fandom. Likes blondes. <laughs> and a babysitter. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Faults, diplomatic to the point of contriving, Ooh. could be moody and obstinate. That is the longest fortune cookie I have ever heard. <laughs> now, yeah. prob- probably a pretty good description of Ho, actually, uh, all of that. Right. Um, but, but, yes, graphology, yeah. load of crap. I, I think, I think me personally, I... I don't know, I still feel like that description, which again sounds pretty right, is probably based off their conversation versus the handwriting, but I wasn't there. But the point is, uh, you're right, they agree to meet again, and three days later they do meet and they strike up a deal. They have some specifics now because they had to fill each other out first, but the OSS is going to provide radio equipment, limited arms and ammunition. In exchange, the Viet Minh would gather intelligence, they would sabotage the Japanese installations, and keep and continue on rescuing American pilots. So so Ho has what he needs. He's got an end to the Americans. He's got a working relationship. Again, this is just more progress to go along with the propaganda and taking advantage of the famine that has happened that was not his fault over the, uh, the last year. So things are going in the direction that he wants. He just needs one more thing Don't from Finn. Yeah. He wants a meeting with Claire Cheno. Who was an American military or, 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 or military? Yeah, Air yeah. Force's military US legend, Force. right? Yeah, advisor to Chiang Kai-shek, founder of the Flying 
Tigers and commander of the 14th Air Force. What can you tell the listeners about the Flying Tigers, Ray? Uh, Yeah, Chanel was an American pilot, and in his career when he was in the U.S. Army Air Force, he wanted to focus on fighter pursuit class when most of the other people wanted to focus on bombers. He's going to retire in 1937 and get a nice paycheck to be an advisor to Chiang Kai-shek. In 1941, he commands the first American volunteer group. In fact, he was up in the air over the skies of Shanghai when the Japanese uh, invaded Shanghai in 1937. Um, So obviously after Pearl Harbor, when the Americans come into this... uh, that all that's going to change, but the point is, he he uh, he came over. He talked some other American pilots into retiring from the military. They came over. Um, they were treated well by Chiang Kai Shek's wife. That sounded bad, Madam Chang, but she was an incredible diplomat. Uh, she made people fall in love with her. And these uh, these men were able to take on the the uh, Japanese teach some of the, their Chinese uh, students, and they really tried to make a difference so the Japanese couldn't just run all over the place. And I think it was Chenault and his men who get the first, they get the the credit for the first ones to take on any of the Japanese after Pearl Harbor when they shot down some of their aircraft. So Chenault became a, a hero to the American people. But yeah, so he tried to put some uh, some iron in the backs of the Chinese pilots that they were training for Chiang Kai-shek. And why did he have a female name, Claire? Um, that's a really good question. He was good-looking, but he wasn't good-looking to the point where he could have been good-looking male or female. He was a good-looking guy. I think his parents wanted a daughter. I don't know. <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> they wanted a daughter, so they just named <laughs> just him Claire. Claire. Yeah. So, hey, yeah. that's my guess. That's your th- that's your theory? Yeah, not uh-huh. out of a book. Not out of a book. No, <laughs> no. Now, uh, actually, the name Claire was traditionally a male name. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Things have changed. Yeah. But go ahead. But, yeah, these days it's usually a female name, but traditionally it was a male name. Right. Did not know that. So, yeah. So, the Flying Tigers, they painted shark faces on the front of their Arr. planes. Their most famous squadron was called... I can't remember. The Hell's Angels. Oh, nice. Nice. The biker gang yeah. took their name from the Flying Tigers. Oh, okay. Which, right. in turn, took their name from the Howard Hughes 1930 film, Hell's Angels, about fighter pilots fighting over a girl. <laughs> gotcha. Hmm. Um... Very famous film. Um, it was, I think he started, it took him so long to make. Heard a podcast about this recently. It took him so long to make, it started off as a silent movie and ended up becoming a talkie. Wow. Um, That's how long talk. yeah, yeah, he directed it, Howard Hughes, um, and he was obviously incredibly rich and crazy. And, yeah, and this was the film that made Gene Harlow. Uh, a famous sex symbol. Mm. Mm. Gotcha. Anywho, um, fly, uh, Hell's Angels, yes. So apparently, this is one of my favourite quotes about Claire Cheneau. When Winston Churchill saw him for the first time at one of the war conferences, he leaned over to one of his aides and said, <laughs> 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 my cheeks out. 
Buck. Hey, I'm Buck, bitches. He said to him, who's that? And the aide said that uh, it was Clitch, and I, he said, well, thank God he's on our side. Yeah, very, very imposing person, especially I was his, he always dressed, his uniforms were always immaculate, so made a good first impression. And he just, he, you know, he had, uh, he has got a Tommy Lee Jones face. Yes, yes. He just has this craggy, square chin. Yeah. Uh, he I looks like, yeah. he just looked like a complete, uh, I don't know, hard ass, yep. bad ass, like, like, like straight out of central casting, this right. guy. Um right. I've I've got I've got like a whole bunch of photos of him in front of me here on Wikipedia. He just looks like John Wayne wishes he was, you know. Right. He just looked hard as fucking nails, this guy. He was. Creased face, yeah. you know, just a million mile stare, like, yeah. Boys, I've seen some shit, I've done some shit, and I'm gonna do more shit. No, he, he was a hard ass, and he, and he pushes men, but he also took really good care of them. But w- what was amazing about him, just throwing this out real quick, is that when he got to to uh, China, he summed up the zeros. And he's like, look, the zeros can climb faster. They can go faster. They can turn tighter. Uh, their pilots have got years of experience, and so there's no way we can take them on evenly in any kind of air battle. So the only way we can defeat these guys is to get above them, dive down on them, shoot them as you're diving down, climb right back up to the very top, and then just do that over and over again. If you ever get into a dogfight with him, you are dead. It's just a matter of how many seconds it's going to take. So that tactic that he came up with, that we all assume now that everybody knows, he's the one who came up with that to combat the uh, superior Zero fighters, and it worked beautifully when the men employed it. Basically, guerrilla warfare tactics. Exactly. For the aircraft. other guy's stronger than you. You got to sneak up, pounce, and get the fuck out of there. And that's exactly what he taught his pilots to do. Now, Ho said, "Look, I'm a big fan big of fan. Uh, big fan of Cheno. Right. Um, I'd, I'd love a meeting. Could you set me up with a meeting? Just a big yeah. fan. Big Just fan. Huge green. fan. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, fan agreed, but said, "Look, you're not allowed to ask him for anything." Can't ask him for any supplies yeah. or any support. No, no. How goes? Just Psst. a fan. No, just no. A fan. Just a huge fan. Yeah. Huge fan. I just want to look at the chin. Yeah. Yeah. Just want to see that chin in real life, <laughs> see if it really will poke my eye out. So he sets up the meeting. Uh, a few days later, Ho gets to meet with Cheno. Now, Cheno thanked Ho for his efforts to save the Thank American you. pilots. Right. Ho said, listen, big fan, love your work, love the flying tigers, love the sharks. Who came up with that? Great idea. Sharks on the front of planes. Yeah. Great idea. Yeah. So they, it's just a meet and greet, pat each other on the back, bit of a reach around. Um, everyone's happy. Before he leaves, Ho goes. Ho, Ho does his best, Columbo. He goes, oh, just, uh, just one more thing. Uh, Chano, Claire, can I call you Claire? It's my mother's name. It's a beautiful name. Just one more thing. Can I take a selfie? Yeah. And Claire goes, yeah, sure. So he goes to pull out his iPhone. He goes, no, no, ah, oh, fuck. Haven't been invented yet. Um, Chenna goes, no, no, it's it's fine. Yeah. I, I have a lot of I have a lot of photographs right. of myself. Apparently, calls in a secretary, yeah. who has a folder full of photographs yeah. of him. Fen in his, right. yeah, Fen the American in his book writes, "There's nothing Cheno liked more than giving his photograph oh. to people." Oh God, 
<laughs> ego much? Yeah. I mean, he could back it up, don't get me wrong, but yeah. So he pulls out a photograph, um, signs it, autographs it for, for Ho. Yours sincerely. To my, to, yep, sorry. To my dear, my dear friend Ho Chi Minh, um, big fan, yours, Claire Chino. Right. Ho's like, fucking you beauty. Yeah, I'm going to sleep with this under and, my pillow. Well, what he does with it is everywhere he goes, right. he shows it to people. It's basically proof yeah. that he had the full unwavering support. Official. Official support of the US government. <laughs> is that not brilliant? And military. Yeah. Brilliant. He used, brilliant. He used Claire's ego against him, got what he wanted, got him to fucking sign it and say, look, look, I'm not, these aren't just words. Look, look what I got here. So, again, how does that not give him even more? How does that not give him f- great face when, as he goes around Vietnam trying to get people to, to join him? It's a, it's a I wouldn't say – Yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I'm done. I, I wouldn't say he used it against him. He, he just no, – he couldn't get right. – you know, the Americans aren't going to give him a piece of paper, a right. certificate to say, uh, we, the United States government, hereby uh, – yeah. Uh, uh, proclaim that we are supporting the right. uh, Viet Minh. Right. No. They're not going to do that. Right. So, again, he uses Cheno's ego right. to give him something which, to the uneducated and illiterate people right. uh, um, of, of the villages of Vietnam, um, it looks like he's good, close, personal friends nice. with... Uh, a yeah. top-ranking American military official, yeah, um, famous military official. So, because he, he's on the front cover of Time magazine, he goes, "See this guy, the front yeah. cover of Time magazine." We're yeah, we're buds. Look, yeah. here it is now. So we have the full support of the Americans right. to overthrow the French and the Japanese. Who's with me? And of course, yeah, they're all going to say yes. Yeah, listen, it's not. You know, me with a couple of 19th century flint-top <laughs> pistols and a hard stare, we have the full backing of the U.S. military. Right. Yeah, and an autograph. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. The value of a photograph. Right. Did we mention, did you mention previously Archimedes Patty? I honestly can't remember. No, but we're going to get to that. Okay. So... Um, he was getting some support. So before he left Kunming in China and returned to Vietnam, he uh, provided his American contacts with this interpretation of the Japanese coup, which mm. I liked. He, he, he wrote them a note, which he signed Luke, L-U-C, which was his uh, nom de plume for mm. this communication. And this is now in the US archives. But he said that, the coup had brought an end to French domination in Indochina after 87 years. Thus, the French imperialist wolf was finally devoured by the Japanese fascist hyena. Wow. Poetry like and that. a status report all rolled into one. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And the basis of a Disney cartoon right. later on. He probably wrote that on his typewriter that he'd carried all over the world. Yeah. That's my guess. Yeah. So he admitted that in the overall scheme of things, in terms of the World War, this was only a very tiny event, but he said it would have a serious bearing on the war in general. Mm. 
uh, on Indochina, France, Japan, and China. And he was trying to persuade the Roosevelt administration, Roosevelt is still alive at this point, early 1945, to attack Japan in Indochina, which he said was Japan's only road of retreat. Right. So come here, attack them here, we'll help. He wrote, from Japan to New Guinea, the Japan force lays like a long snake whose neck is Indochina. Mm. If the Allies knock hard on its neck, the snake will cease to move. Yeah, Yeah, and and he, uh, Ho, just like the vast majority of American military personnel and the planners, they don't know about the atomic bomb. They think they're going to have to fight their way through, so he thinks he's got a pretty good sales pitch here, but um, when the occupant in the White House changes, there's going to be, you know, uh, uh, the end of the war is going to be brought about by different means. But again, it was a very good play on his part. He was trying to get the Americans by any way he possibly could to come to his country, not the French, the Americans. And so they did in a, in a small way. So the OSS begins to airdrop supplies, medicine, radio set, and some weapons mm. uh, to the Viet Minh. And in return, the Viet Minh are rescuing um, US pilots and providing the US with intelligence reports. Now, the OSS called its Vietnam operation the Deer Mission. Mm-hmm. D-E-E-R. We're going deer hunting. <laughs> deer hunting. And on July 16th, 1945, a deer team led by Colonel Allison Thomas mm-hmm. parachuted into Ho's new base, his forward base, a tiny village in the jungle called Tran Trao. Now, Claire and Allison. Now, here's the thing. You didn't need to have a woman's name to be right. a senior U.S. military leader in World War II, right. but it helped. <laughs> M- many people don't know that Douglas MacArthur's name, for example, his real first name was actually Shirley. Right. Shirley, you must be um, joking. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not joking, and don't call me Shirley. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower's first name was actually Mary. Right. A lot of people don't know that. I did not know um, that. It was a thing. Uh, they, they, yeah. you know, you, they like to pick their soldiers by giving them women's names. That's if you get That's how you make a guy tough <laughs> in the early part of the twentieth century. <laughs> like if you wanted your son right. to grow up tough, you gave him a girl's name. Oh my god! Um, and so he'd true. get his ass whooped right. for years. And right. um, you'd either do that or you'd you'd put him in a bubble, right? And uh, make him. I would have gotten a girl's name. Grow up name, as a bubble boy. They they named me Ray Junior. So that's the only way I escaped the uh, the Claire Shirley Mary uh, Allison name. Well, you're the one member of the family that didn't go into the military, so you didn't need. Oh, that's true. Uh, you, that's true. Yeah. yeah, you did because you didn't you didn't pass the height did. uh, minimum height restrictions or IQ level. I think was the thing. Uh, oh, if I ever so they put you in, you in bubble. a bubble. Wow. Okay. Um, So after he managed to disentangle himself from a banyan tree where his parachute had landed, Allison Thomas um, gave this bit of a flowery speech to the 200 Viet Minh soldiers that um, had gathered there with a banner saying, welcome to our American friends. Because they had an iPhone and they had an app translator. And they could understand what Allison was saying. Well, Ho could understand what Allison was saying because he spoke English. Ho, uh, speaking in good English, greeted the OSS team and offered them some supper. 
But it was clear to the Americans that he wasn't very well. He was shaking like a leaf and obviously running a high fever, Ooh. according to Allison's account. Right. The next day, Ho denounced the French. Mm-hmm. Now, this is after he'd said they were only anti-Jap. He denounced <laughs> right. the French now. He's warming up to them. Yeah. Said, but we would welcome 10 million Americans in our country. Nice. Little did he realise he would get his wish one day. <laughs> no. No. But they would all be fighting on the other right. side. Did I be bringing rifles? Mm. Yeah. But Allison was impressed by what he heard. Do you have uh, some of his quotes? I have. Yeah. So he, so he, uh, Colonel Thomas Allison Thomas writes back. He radios back to OSS headquarters in Kunming, southern China, and he goes, "Forget the communist bogey. Viet Minh League is not communist. Stands for freedom and reforms against the French harshness." So again, so at least Ho was honest enough to say, "Look, we, I got to be honest with you. I got to level with you. We are, and maybe this is the temperature that I have, but we are against the French." And Thomas is okay with that. He understands it and he passes it along. So again, this guy is not Ho is not coming across as extremist, but Ho is starting to lay down the line that you know, yeah, if I had my way, the French wouldn't be coming back. So he's laying the groundwork again with the Americans. But he's also pretending that he's not communist. Right. Yeah. Who, me? Um, yeah. Yeah, he, he's using that line, oh, look, they say that about everybody. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like when, you know, when you're in Vegas and people accused you of being homosexual. You're like, they say well, that about everybody who likes to suck dick. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, here, but not over <laughs> in Virginia. No, yeah. I'm not gay, but my boyfriend is. That's the way you normally put it. Um now, it wasn't just the Americans that were confused about this, though. Mm-hmm. The Soviets and the Chinese yeah. at this juncture weren't sure if Ho was really leading a communist revolution or just a liberation movement because he was playing his cards very close to his chest, as Fidel Castro would 15 years later. Ah. When, when you're hoping to get the support of the Americans mm-hmm. for, your, for the liberation of your country... You can't just come out and say that you're a communist. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. If you if you admit it openly, Americans aren't going to support you. So they had to go. No, no. communist, communist. Sh- 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 That's right. What? Yeah, communist. Me. No, no get out of here. Yeah, yeah. You're crazy. Get out of here with that. Oh, you're crazy. You're going to be fine. Take two aspirin. Call me in the morning. Cancer. Ah. <laughs> Yeah. No, but you're right. I mean, even Moscow was questioning his... <laughs> Speaking of which, yeah. sorry. Sorry, I've got to interrupt. I don't know if you saw this, um, but um, Julia Lewis-Dreyfus, Elaine from Seinfeld, right. just was uh, awarded the Mark Twain Prize. Uh-huh. I heard about that, but I didn't. Um, and uh, Larry David didn't, didn't go to the ceremony, but he posted a video. He made a video that they played during oh, the ceremony. Nice. Uh, you, did you see it? Did you? I posted yeah, on Facebook. Yeah. Did you see it? Oh my god! You got to see it, man. It's classic, Larry. Okay. He starts off by saying, um, "You know, Julia. You know, a lot of great work that she's done. She was on SNL. She was on Seinfeld. New Adventures of Old Christine. Veep. But her best performance, and the one that I'm pretty sure that won her this award, the whole cancer thing. Really? <laughs> no. Like, no. I." He goes, you know what? She really committed to that, and it was pretty good. I got to be honest. I nearly bought it. I nearly bought it for a while there, 
It was absolutely genius. Oh, my God. And I really take my hat off to her, the whole cancer thing. Because, by the way, while the Mark Twain committee's listening, <coughs> I, I actually went to a doctor yesterday and right. uh, it's it's it's. It's probably nothing, it's but like, uh, right. you know, yeah. you know. <laughs> thoughts and prayers, my friend. I was like, thoughts and prayers. Only Larry would yeah. go there. Only Larry yeah. would make fun of somebody's cancer. <laughs> well, it was the good kind for a laugh. No, right. Only Larry <laughs> could do that and get away with it. It's yeah, fucking genius. Oh, yeah, even even I was shaking my head, going, <laughs> "Oh my god, Dude. you did not just do that." Yeah. Genius. Anywho, anyway, watch it. So, watch, watch the Larry David talk. I absolutely will. Yeah. Hmm. No, just that um, that Ho was doing such a good job of downplaying his either communist ideology or his connections or whatever that Moscow started to question that. And I think we all know by now that if Moscow was questioning your commitment, your life expectancy goes down. Your life insurance policy probably gets gets a lot more expensive. But the point is, he is willing to make these risks, like you said, to bring on the Americans. And even Mao Zedong of the Chinese Communist Party is like, you know, if he does win, I honestly can't tell you where he's going to take the country. So this guy, if he can trick or, or cause confusion amongst uh, Moscow and uh, Mao Zedong, you know, you've got to know he is tricking the Americans quite easily. And it is working. I don't think the, the the Soviets were going to have him whacked because they weren't sure if he was really a communist or not. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm just saying when, when Stalin has doubts about you, things have a tendency to happen. You think Stalin was trying to kill every person in the world who wasn't a communist at this juncture? No, not every person. If you were no, I if you were a political rival of Stalin's like and criticizing right. him like Trotsky, yeah, okay, yeah. then you've got a death warrant. But I don't think he was worried about Ho, and he had his own problems as we discussed. He was busy, yeah. Um, but they, yeah, I mean, and there must have been people in Moscow still there. I, I think a lot of Ho's friends uh, from the thirties had ended up dead, right. but um, some of them would have remembered him as being a communist. Um, members of the guy. French Communist Party would remember him as, uh, as being a communist. Right. But he's playing his cards close to his chest because you kind of have to at yeah. this juncture. Yeah. Now, some of the OSS personnel that parachuted in included a medic who diagnosed Ho's illness as malaria and dysentery. Ooh. Another theory, though, is that he contacted tuberculosis while he was in Chinese prisons. Right. Um, anyway, they bring some drugs... Um, they 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 dose him up. It gets a little bit better, but he's still very frail at this stage. So he's trying to lead a massive revolution oh in his country to yeah. kick out the French and the Japanese, From the dealing with the Americans. But he's on his deathbed. Right. Yeah, he's very he's like like Augustus, man. He's like yeah. pretty. He's half dead most of the time, and yeah. it's quite serious. Like he's not just <clears throat> Larry David coughing. He's he's like seriously. <laughs> Seriously frail. And if you look at any pictures of him, this guy has no spare skin or body parts. I mean, this guy is just freaking tiny. He's been that way his whole life. But now that he's in his thing, mid-50s, um, it's all catching up to him. And um, But again, he I don't know if it's just something that burns inside of him, which I completely respect. But this guy is just driven to keep going on. And he does. He's been poor his whole life. Yes. 
um, you know, fighting the fight his whole life. But yeah. he can cook, cook a souffle. So, so boom, not all that bad. Got that going for him. <laughs> now, in the main, he was really making good impression on the Americans. Um, their reports about him describe him as being warm, intelligent, friendly to the United States, keen to cooperate with the United States. And they gave him uh, a name. He's known as OSS Agent 19. So there you have it. Ho Chi Minh worked for the CIA. (laughs) He had an official CIA designation. Yeah, Everybody's using everybody. Yeah. OSS Agent 19. That's great. And I just want to say, again, that the OSS, they're doing their part, too. They're also, to a degree, using the famine. famine. They're passing out food and clothing to people, whoever they meet in the north, that kind of thing. So they're gaining an appreciation by the locals who are assuming, because they're doing all this, that the United States, and I wanted to just take a moment, and and if we could talk about this, I know we're near time, but the the locals are assuming that the Americans are anti-French and anti-colonial. And, and as we've talked about on previous episodes, Ho is also like, the Americans are unique, uniquely positioned to understand where I'm coming from, because they, they don't have the history of colonies like all these other powers do. And as you've mentioned time and time again, I mean, we ha- we've, had, we've had Hawaii, we've had the Philippines, we've had other possessions that we've taken. But still, to his thinking, to his mind, that the United States will truly understand more than anybody else or be able to appreciate when we say, look, these people have ruled us for 100 years. We want our own. This is our time. Please help us. I, I think he's maybe out of desperation, but just putting way too much faith and hope and maybe even projecting onto Washington his hopes and dreams for as this war is ending. Well, look, I I don't know um, long-term how he thinks it's going to play out here, but short-term, he knows that FDR doesn't like the French, Mm -hmm. um, obviously don't like the Japanese, and they're the only people in a position Ah, to help. He needs help. No one else is coming to his aid. The British can't or won't because they're colonialists Mm. themselves. Soviets are busy. Um, the 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 French are occupied by the Nazis still, um, and and you know aren't going to help them anyway. Obviously, so yeah, there's no one else to turn to. It has to be the Americans right now. Yeah. Now this is where your friend Major Archimedes Patty, uh, real first name Bridget, um, <laughs> head of the OSS base in Kunming, comes in and really? teaches the Viet Minh how to use flamethrowers oh and God. grenade launchers yeah. and machine guns. What was his first name again? Betty? What? What was that? Bridget. 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 Bridget sounds like a badass. Mm. Flamethrowers and hand grenades. <laughs> yeah, don't mess with that. Yeah, he comes in in March of 1945. He's a, a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army, obviously working for the OSS. So he gets in there and he's showing them, you know, because even though America, for whatever reason, either um, just being smart enough or they're being cautious or whatever, they're not giving the Viet Minh tons of of ammunition and guns. It's not like they have got crates full of weapons, but they are showing them how to use things, and they are giving them some so they can keep raiding and hitting the Japanese. But again, um, Ho is not getting everything he wants. He's not having massive shipments of weapons sent to him. But still, it is a relationship, and it is working for for the two sides. 
His full name was Archimedes Leonidas Attilio <laughs> Patty. Damn. Don't get much more American than that. <laughs> or testosterone-ish. Yeah. Archimedes Leonidas Attilio Patti, born in the Bronx right. to Sicilian immigrants. Wow. Wow. Uh, badass. Yeah. Another uh, badass. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, he wrote several books on Vietnam, um, including Why Vietnam? Prelude to America's Albatross. Ooh. That would be good. Mm. Yeah. Where he talks about um, Ho Chi Minh. Um, so, uh, how are we going for time? Mm. Yeah, sort of getting there. 56. Um, yeah, so he trained He trained a couple of hundred um, future leaders of the Viet Minh that the Americans would have to fight uh, 10 years later. But um, 15 years later, he, mm. he trained them in how to use all of this kind of stuff. Shit. He also um, uh, Ho told the OSS and Patty at the time that he hoped his dream was that one day young Vietnamese could go and study in the United States Aww. and that Americans would help them build an independent Vietnam. He's putting it out there. He said, your statesmen make eloquent speeches about self-determination. We are self-determined. Why not help us? Am I any different from your George Washington? I don't know. Let me see your teeth. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's the first thing. Here's I an axe. Here's, a, here's an axe. There's a cherry tree. <laughs> Go chop it down. Yeah. It's like Schrodinger cat. Chop it down or don't chop it down, but don't lie to me either way. All right. Well, I think we'll leave uh, episode 101 there. That's where we're up to. Ho is making friends with the Americans. The Americans are training yes. Ho and his forces in how to fight, giving them modern military equipment. And that is uh, that. that. We'll be back next week with episode 102 of the Cold War Show. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.